Hello, podcast listeners. Before we start the show, I would like to make sure everyone knows that we're conducting a short survey. It's your chance to tell us what you like and don't like about the podcast. So please, take a moment and help us out. The link is in the show notes. Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 56. Welcome back, gentlemen. So I think uh, we're going to continue on with our new format and start off with some news. Anything cool happening? Yeah, we had a couple updates on the Parse server, uh, one from earlier in March that we missed. Uh, one of the big things that was uh, absent from the open source Parse server was the dashboard UI. And as of early March, uh, that's now been released as an open source project. Uh, it's still, I think, a lightweight version of what was what is on Parse.com, but uh, they're expecting to have a decent amount of community involvement in driving that forward. Now, so far, it can do the basic things, and they also added later this in March the ability to send push notifications, and uh, they had a feature called uh, parse config, which kind of let you provide bootstrap parameters to your application config parameters. Uh, so, so that's now got a UI as well as part of that parse server dashboard. Uh, so I expect to see a lot more additions coming from the community to that in the near future. Couple those two t- together, coupled together, that really is starting to make it much more of a compelling op- offer to me than it was definitely on the first day, of course, but even going over and writing something custom. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, in a lot of ways, I feel like the open source parse server is better than what we had before from uh, these third-party backends as a service. So, you know, you got the control, you can fork it, do what you need to do with it, customize it to your needs, but you get a lot out of the box uh, with very little. I know another feature they added was uh, streaming queries. Yeah. So it's kind of a long-running query that will just stream the data down to you slowly, and that's not even in parse proper right right so we're yep. we're already seeing it evolve beyond what parse.com uh, supported so it's pretty exciting yeah it's fairly easy to get up and running but i i still feel like it's it's got a bit of a ways to go uh if you know if is there like a docker image where you can get it up and running all with all of the different things that are there now there's like you know five different things if you yeah. want Dashboard, you gotta do this, and if you want uh, cloud code, you gotta do this, and if you just want the API, you gotta do this, and it's yeah, it's I, getting there. Each piece has a Docker image, but there's not, as far as I know, right. a, a one Docker image to get all of it up and running. And yeah, and then you have the database as well. You need to get some yeah. Mongo running somewhere. Yeah, so. and they've got some recommendations and a couple of. Um, couple of the providers if if you don't want to manage it yourself there's some providers out there that'll uh, 
that have documentation of how to migrate from parse.com over uh, to their solutions. And I think in a lot of cases, they offer a discount for that first year. Um, it, kind of related news as well. Uh, Facebook had an open source engine for uh, Mongo that has significantly better compression and faster uh, response time. Um, so they the had storage a storage engine. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's called Rocket DB, or it's something like that. Um, and it's like compatible with Mongo, or yeah, well, it's it replaces the engine in Mongo. Um, okay, gotcha. So it's kind of like how what was it? MySQL like had different NODB, and, and yeah, exactly. Whatever the other one was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think with version three they came out with a pluggable storage engine. That's that's relatively yes. new, I believe. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so, you know, one of the challenges with Mongo is it can take a decent amount of storage. Um, so it can get expensive pretty quick. But uh, I, I think this new engine has, I want to say, like up to 90% um, less space. Hmm. And then I think the backups are more incremental, so you can back up more often, I think. Um, not my area of expertise, but. Uh, but there's all these moving pieces. They also added the S3 file storage, which is what parse.com uses. Uh, it's not trivial to set up, but you can now do that with a open source parse server, and they've got a, a post on how to do that. Interesting. I wonder if they'll get that running on some of the the Mongo providers out there. I just started the process of moving a couple of my projects over that were running on parse this week, and it was uh, definitely a fun fun thing just starting to get down to the details of even just getting the data over to somewhere else and getting the server up and running. And I was like, all right, now cloud code. And I was like, oh, crap, this is going to be a pain. And I think I think you have mentioned something like that to me too, Alex. I'll we'll have to catch up with you later and see how you did that. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's definitely moving pieces. In some ways, it's good. It lets you scale out your architecture in different ways. So your dashboard yeah. UI isn't necessarily running on the same instance that your your production um, API service is running, but uh, coordinating all that uh, takes a little bit of effort to, to get it started. Yeah, there are definitely ways around coordinating all that stuff, and it's definitely not in my area of expertise. Yeah, it gets into that DevOps space, which... Uh, <laughs> Developers only little only flirt with a little bit. Um, it takes takes some commitment to get all those details ironed out. That's one of the things that made parse dot com so appealing is you didn't have to think about all those things and how to monitor it and what happens when the server needs to restart or um, you know you need to scale it up. Uh, so you you now have to deal with that yourself if if you're gonna set up your own parse server. Probably effort worth an investment worth making uh, if, if you're putting up a serious backend, but not something you're going to do in, in an hour or two. Yeah, see, I'm still not sure that parse is good for a serious backend. Maybe it is, but it seems it's more, more for like smaller little toy type things. That's the only thing I've been using it for. Nothing like that your business depends on I would think would be good to run on on parse before and maybe now too. 
I think I would have agreed with you before. And I think it's more about the lack of customization you had before. Mm -hmm. uh, with the open source version, I feel like your hands aren't tied anymore. So if you need to do okay. something out of the ordinary, you can. If it's scaling it, theoretically, it shouldn't be any more difficult than any node server that you would put up there. So, you know, unless your comments about is node really designed for something... Um, I don't know if I'm going to go down that path. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's, that becomes kind of a religious war to some degree. Yeah. But I, th I think there's plenty of large companies that depend on Node. Yeah. And are successful with it. But yeah, I don't necessarily have a problem with Node. Scaling anything, uh, is non trivial. You know, there's, you've got to design it for scaling. And just because you use one technology or another doesn't automatically give you scalability you know there's considerations that have to be made yeah i guess there's some lower level access that you have too that you didn't with old parts that makes sense yeah i can i can i can dig i can dig that and we all know that mongo is web scale <laughs> almost <laughs> as web scale as devnal we should put that link in the show notes <laughs> yeah if you don't know what we're talking about check it out it's pretty funny uh so what other news has there been so we got the new Safari technology preview. Uh, so Safari's been lagging a bit in what what specs, what technologies it supports compared to Chrome and some of the other browsers. So now we have access to the the new preview, and uh, they posted up a status page of all the new features that are coming in in WebKit. So it's good to see that that. Apple hasn't given up on Safari, and they're still working to, to make it better and trying to keep pace with some of the other browsers, though they are pretty far behind. Do you know how different this is from the old WebKit nightlies that that existed? They just had, like, the uh, the gold rim around Safari rather than the silver before? You know, honestly, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if this is... An attempt to, I used to love get more that. publicity, or if it's if it's a, a new approach, I I really don't know. Well, it looks like the WebKit Nightlies are still there, and they have a black icon. So it's your choice. What what icon do you like better? You got black. You got the normal one. You got purple. So, I mean, I, I remember like before some dub dubs, there would be like features that were leaked. Uh, because the WebKit nightly, the source code was coming out every day, and people would look at that and be like, "Oh, hey, look, there's this new WK WebView thing that works on OS 10 and iOS. What? <laughs> so, or even JavaScript Core that wasn't new. Yeah. If they keep opening up all these technologies like this, they're not going to have anything to announce at DubDub ever. It'll become a. I don't know if that's a bad thing. <laughs> No, I don't think it's bad. I, you know, it becomes almost a, a hardware-oriented announcement as opposed to uh, pure software. And then you don't have issues where you have to pull stuff at the last minute, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So is what What are some of the new features that are coming? Is this, Are they just playing catch-up, or is there anything genuinely new? A lot of it has to do with the new JavaScript standards, uh, ES6, ES7, 
Um, okay. And I think those have been renamed. Their their status page hasn't been updated to reflect that. And I think ES6 is now called ES2015, and I, I assume ES7 is 2016, but I'm not sure. Um, is there a left pad function built into <laughs> either of those? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, there probably should be. Yeah. <laughs> no standard uh, library. Sorry. I, I will like the feature that I'm looking forward to in Safari is WebRTC only because there's a lot of conferencing sites out there that rely on WebRTC and it, they don't work with Safari. So it'd be nice. I thought we already had that. Nope. Ugh. Yeah, I, I know Amazon Prime Video, if you're using Safari, it makes you install Silverlight. You guys mm-hmm. remember Silverlight? Yeah. So maybe that'll get fixed up. Yeah, hopefully. That stuff's no good. Netflix, I wish they would get rid of it. My uh, payroll company just got rid of it, too. I was very happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of uh, Microsoft technologies, Microsoft had their annual build conference. I guess it was this past week. And... They announced that Xamarin is now free. Uh, free, at least going open source. And if you have a Visual Studio license, you can now use Xamarin for free to develop iOS and Android apps. As well as they released a Xamarin Studio Community Edition. I think it's what it's called, something like that. And that allows you to even develop on Mac in Xamarin. So it's probably based on the old Mono Studio, which was a functional enough uh, IDE back in its day. Well, they had a... I, I don't know if it's what they're using or not, but there was a uh, a um, Visual Studio for Mac that is based on Electron, Atom. Yeah, I don't know if this is related to that or not. Because there was a Visual Studio or a uh, developer or IDE for Mono, Mono. Develop. Yeah, Mono Develop. Yeah. Develop. Well, and then Xamarin had their own stuff too. I think Mono Develop was the free one, and then yeah, they had their own one. But it sounds like that's available on OS ten for free now. Just sound, yeah. or a free version of it at least. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I I think we talked about you know a few episodes ago that Microsoft bought Xamarin and. For those not familiar with it, it's a one of the cross-platform development tools for iOS and Android uh, that uses C Sharp primarily. And it's it's got a decent community around it, a decent number of of uh, components that you can use for both platforms. And yeah, I remember when I was first looking to get into mobile. It was a solution out there, but just as an independent developer, it it was way too pricey. Yeah, I think if you wanted to distribute to a large number of people, it was it was quite expensive, or it could get expensive. I think if you stayed, like if you had a small internal company app, it might not have been too bad. But as it as your number of users grew, I think the price grew as well. But if you were just some dude trying to write some apps at his house, it's like, yeah, I'm not paying extra money for all that stuff. Yeah. 
Right. And I I don't remember what the pricing was exactly. I just remember people being squirmish about the pricing with Xamarin. Yeah, I think they did move away from a distribution license. Just, you know, whatever you'd call that kind of license where the more successful you are, the more you pay. They did move away from that into a, here's here's a flat yearly subscription that you pay. Kind of like a Unity or a Unreal. Yeah. And the, I know the Enterprise version wasn't cheap either. It was several thousand per developer per year. But if you're a big enterprise, that's something you just kind of accept usually. Now, if you have to buy Visual Studio, that used to be several thousand per year per developer. I don't know if it still is, but. Right. Depending on what you would, what level you would get. Yeah. Yeah. They have some community version now too, but yeah. And they had a mid tier that was functional as well. So arguably if you knew C sharp and you wanted to do cross platform, Xamarin was one of the better choices because instead of trying to run web technologies in a web view, it actually compiles to native code. So you get a native experience. Um, but I think there was a decent amount of conditional branching based on which platform you're on. And there's a couple different ways of developing with Xamarin. So um, one way is a little bit more cross-platform than the other. And they had a MVC framework where basically you would just re-implement your view layer each time. So it was definitely a nice offering, but just kind of priced out of the independence range, I think. And this this does change a lot. I'm not sure what it means for me. You know, I do like Swift, and I do like where Swift is headed. So I think I'll stay with that. But it may be something that I'm going to be forced to investigate at some point in the future, I'm sure. Why forced? Because some company is going to be like, oh, this is the solution to all of our cross cross platform needs yeah you know if you're at a client and they're spending x amount of dollars for just android developers and x amount of dollars for just ios developers and they think well maybe if i use this tool that still allows me to get a good client on both platforms i can cut my developers in half which may or may not be true yeah we had we had some some chat going on about this in the the Slack the other day. And I've I, my thought was, like, you can get some cool tools to let you write in whatever language you want on whatever platform, probably. But there's always going to be some delay whenever new SDKs come out. And the big issue is you need to learn the APIs. If it's, if it's one of the ones that just lets you compile in whatever language you want and you're still using the native libraries for all the UI stuff, so... I don't know. I don't. I can't see right. it be the the silver bullet that you know that I'm sure all the everyone wants, but I don't think there is one. No. Who knows? Yeah, definitely, <laughs> no. definitely not. You know, we used to evaluate these tools every year, and uh, every year they always came up short, buggy, missing features, poor documentation. Um, just years behind the platforms that they're trying to follow. 
they created created more challenges than they solved. Uh, Xamarin could be appealing to a company that was building enterprise apps, and they have a decent team of C sharp developers, or an agency that is building marketing applications that have a short lifespan and they want to minimize their investment because they know they're going to throw it away six months later. So, you know, I, I think there's a place for tools like this, but you have to have the skill set in house and you're not going to, it's not cutting the cost in half, but no, <laughs> you know, I, I think after you get a decent amount of skill with it, you know, you might be able to save 10 or 20%, but not 50% of your development costs. And that doesn't count QA and, and all the other things. Yeah, speaking of things that have a long ramp, do you guys want to get into our our main topic of the, the night, or do we have any other news items? Let's go ahead and jump into the main topic. All right, so what is our main topic, Alex? So... This week we're going to talk about RX Swift, which is uh, if uh, if you follow various blogs and conferences, I'm sure you've heard RX come up a time or two um, in one form or another. You know, Reactive Cocoa's been around for a long time. It follows a lot of the same paradigms as RX Swift, and there's probably half a dozen or more similar frameworks built in Swift for reactive programming and this is another uh microsoft inspired concept um reactive extensions actually i think is something that microsoft spearheaded years ago that uh, has seeped its way into java with arcs java and now with uh with swift with arc swift man we need to get microsoft to sponsor this comp this uh podcast <laughs> Yeah, they'll probably sponsor anybody right now. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it actually does come out of something we were talking about earlier, uh, the Silverlight stuff, because they the reactive extensions were released around the same time as XAML and Silverlight together. But uh, it, it is reactive extensions is kind of a, a specific branding or specific set of API that it's not really a standard, but it's more or less a de facto industry standard where just a lot of people have decided to adopt this style. You have a certain number of things that are available to you that most of them implement uh, typically in the same manner. So you, if you learn RX Swift, Chances are you won't have too hard of a time going over to RX Java as long as you can deal with writing Java, uh, which I hear RX Java is pretty decent when you're using Java 8. Yeah. Well, because of the, the lambdas. And I think even with the Android Studio, I think this is really kind of weird the way it works, but I think it will convert um, your anonymous center classes into the new Java 8 lambdas in the editor. Uh, but in reality, it's actually the old style. Uh, so it cleans up your code quite a bit while you're editing, uh, which is kind of a, a weird feature of an IDE, but uh, 
it, it, it helps. They had a similar in, thing for properties a while ago yeah, in Java land. The, <laughs> the generated R dot, uh, properties. It, it would replace that with the, the actual strings or constants or whatever. So made the code more readable. For Android. <laughs> oh. Oh, there was a. Where you could have like Java. getters and setters type, type things in Java. Yeah, there was a Java extension, I think, called Pizza that later kind of morphed into Scala, where you got more first-class properties. But that's that's another topic. Yeah. <laughs> but generally, if you look at the code for ArcJava, ArcSwift, ArcsJS, it looks almost identical. I mean, there's a few language-specific differences, but they read pretty much the same. So, yeah, those concepts tend to... Uh, transcend the language a little bit. So for people who don't know what Rx is, you know, what's the goal here? You know, they, they talk about functional reactive programming. What, what is it that we're talking about? I think you can boil it down to one basic statement and that's using functional ideas on sequences and sequences in time. You know, you get, let's say you get a bunch of keyboard notifications and yeah, you've got your handlers for those, but really if you could take all of those notifications and just kind of handle them in a sequence, like you do say in Swift with the map function where you'd map over an array, why not be able to map over a sweet sequence of notifications? And that's what functional reactive programming is about. It's taking these things that come in over time and then applying functional ideas to those. So in a lot of ways, you're taking these all these various ways of communicating between classes like notifications, KVO, uh, delegates, um, you know, function callbacks and and unifying them under this one concept of rx yeah well those are kind of in a way uh just side benefits because they are things that generate sequences over time or what are called signals and so since you can just convert any of those things into a sequence then yeah you can use the same functional ideas on top of those but yeah it is it is a it is a nice benefit because now if i want to handle the notification, I can write similar code that would be used to handle a KVO event. And is this strictly for like asynchronous processing or are there other reasons you would use Rx? It It's pretty much all asynchronous, right? Because your, your events, they're going to come in over time. I kind of, I thought about today a little bit and was trying to decide, okay, what's the difference between a promise and using something like Rx? And to me, it seems like promises, they're nice ways of straightening out your, your async code to make it look like all one big flow. But it's kind of a old style imperative approach where you have the, the this, mm -hmm. then this, then this. Whereas, uh, Rx is more of a functional style where you say, okay, well, 
when this happens, map this, map over it, or transform it, or filter it, or combine it with other things into another thing, and then pass that off to another observer. So it's kind of, to me, like the difference between imperative programming and functional programming just with async mixed in. Okay. So anytime you're talking about async programming, you're talking about a reasonable amount of complexity. And you know, would you say that Rx improves on that? It makes it less complex? Or you know, what does it really take to adopt Rx in a project? There, There is a fair amount of learning curve. I won't lie. It, it has taken me a while to get to this level of comfort where I'm at. Uh, I don't feel like I'd want to go back to the old style of, of not using it hmm. at this point in my, in my career, but it, it wasn't an easy journey to get here. So it's, you know, I hate to use the phrase paradigm shift, but in a, in a way, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's kind of what we're talking about. It's, it's the approach and, and it may not be as significant as some other, uh, different language approaches or programming approaches, but you know, the imperative versus reactive approach or functional approach, um, you know, it does force you to think about solving the problems in a, in a different way than maybe your muscle memory tells you to solve them. So, um, I've heard, uh, there was a presentation at the GoTo conference somebody from Netflix who said it it was something like two plus months of a learning curve of people getting used to Rx and, and learning, making mistakes, you know, maybe throwing away experiments uh, before they really had a solid grasp on it. You know, would you, would you say that two months is about right? Yeah, I've got some side projects that I, I would have, I would just throw away at this point because they're probably not uh, good code, good Rx code. And I would say even today, I'm still kind of refining my approach. So I might, you know, two weeks ago, might've written something differently than I would have today. One, one way to think about it is that we're always trying to manage state and we're, we're kind of directing that state and kind of telling it where to go and what to do. But functional reactive programming is more about taking that state and when it changes, doing something so that you don't always have to remember, okay, if, if this, if I'm going to modify this, I need to modify this, this and that. It's more, you set up these listeners or observers in a way, they're basically called observers. You set these observers up to watch these observables. And when those observables change, they, the other, the observers react to it. So I, I find that once I do have the program written, it's not too hard to reason about. And I think that's a important distinction that it's, it's not so much a learning curve reading it. It reads better typically than the imperative approach, but it's the figuring out how to structure your code initially is where, where you really spend your time figuring out how to do things. It's less so going back and reading it. Yeah. You could also say that, you know, way back in the day, we had procedural programming which was an improvement over the way it used to be where you just write a bunch of code and have go-tos everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, then we came up with this whole idea of object-oriented programming, and we've been refining that approach 
for you know, years, almost decades, really. And in OO, we decided that behavior should live with data, but I think we didn't quite go far enough. And FRP, or as Fargo likes to call it, FERP, right. takes it a little bit further and says, well, there's also this thing called state, and we need to react to states when that changes. And so you're not going to tell something how to react to a state change. It's going to decide how to react to that state change on its own. Right. And you're not passing your state around to a lot of different places and changing it in lots of different places. You've, you've changed the flow, your data flow to be unidirectional and that state change is happening in one and only one place. And then every, everything else observes and responds to that state change. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I would say so. And a nice thing too is that since it's using functional ideas, everything is very composable. Really, there's about 15 or so operators that all the Rx libraries use, and you can get a lot done with those 15 operators. You know, there's a core set of things that you need for a functional language, and those same things have pretty much been implemented in Rx uh, with a few additions for sequential ideas. But that's all you really need for, for functional, and functional reactive programming doesn't use much more. So you don't have to go out and create a whole bunch of these crazy observers of, of your own. You just compose a bunch of things into one and return that back. I know it's kind of uh might be a little bit of a uh, deep topic for a podcast without visuals, but basically you're just mapping, transforming, and uh, you know, reduce on sequences instead of iterables. So in in the Android community, or really the Java community, Arc's Java has become almost de facto standard. Like it's you know, talking about learning curve and whether or not it makes sense to adopt Arc's Java is, is less than of an issue just because so many members of the community have decided to go that way. And as far as I know, there's only one real option of Arc's Java. And there's probably some others out there, but Arc's Java is... is fairly popular. In Swift, we, we've got a good five or six different options uh, to choose from, which probably makes it harder to to know what to adopt. But I mean, do you see, what I struggle with is, is now the right time to adopt it? Is it something that's going to be well supported in the future? Or is it a, a short-term trend uh, to go towards an Arc Swift or something similar? Well, Rx Swift is about as young as the Swift language itself, but Reactive Cocoa goes back a few years before that. Um, it's definitely something that's here to stay, and I think those two libraries have a lot of legs. You know, they have good communities around them. Finding documentation online is not too hard. It gets get, gets easier and easier every day. Yeah, I would say six months ago, it was a lot harder to find third-party articles or presentations on RxSwift, and today it's it's a lot easier. Yeah. Now, there are other ones that I don't remember the names of too well. I think there was one called SwiftBond, which may have may have changed its name a couple of times. I think there's a Reactive Kit and a React Kit, and yeah, there's, there's a few out there. Yeah, but definitely Reactive Cocoa and RxSwift have the most mind share these days. And as far as like the, the two, whether you might like one or the other, I feel like RX Swift, they took a route of uh, unifying things better. Uh, 
there's this idea of what they call hot and cold signals and probably going to get this backwards, but a cold signal won't do anything until you subscribe to it. But a hot signal is something like maybe a timer or something or something that would listen to keyboard events or push notifications. But it, it's basically something that's going to be doing stuff all the time anyway. And even if you, when you subscribe to it, it's just going to give you values that it may already have or may not have. And Reactive Cocoa decided to keep those ideas separate. So you have signals and signal producers. But if you want to use some of the operators that are available to signals on a signal producer, you have to first lift it up into a signal. And it's just a little bit more confusing, I think. Whereas RX Swift said, Hey, you want to map over this thing? I don't care if it's hot or cold. So I, I like that approach better. For me, it's been easier to grasp and just to come at it. So I, I think for myself, I see the value proposition that something like RX Swift, I see the problem that it's trying to solve, you know, having to maintain state in a way uh, that makes sense, uh, doesn't introduce opportunities for lots of bugs, you know, because your state's being changed in, in many different places. You know, anytime you have mutable state, you've got you're introducing complexity then you have lots of different places perhaps in the ui that need to be updated anytime the state changes so any large app you quickly see where if you don't manage it well uh, the application can get more and more complex and more difficult to to maintain and more opportunities for for bugs to be introduced in multiple layers of the application so like the the value proposition makes sense to me so then the question with rx swift if, if it is a two-month uh, learning curve you know is that two months worth the the investment well i guess initially for your first few months even after your first two months you're going to be producing some code that's not necessarily bug free maybe a little lower quality than what you're used to producing so it's not going to save you any time in uh, regression testing or qa testing but eventually it should help you down the road when you go back and look at that program and and you can see oh this this thing is changing state here um, and you don't have to remember oh i need to when i change this value i need to tell these other three things and i think if you kind of couple it with a few other ideas like using model view view model you can get a lot of mileage out of lowering the footprint of the individual files so you don't have these massive you know five or two thousand line view controllers and so that makes it easier to reason about too from a maintenance perspective it's going to be better down the road yeah i don't i don't think the the argument is that it's going to be you're going to be more productive in writing your code it's going to be more about the code being more maintainable that it's going to be more obvious where and how state changes in the application and and how uh, other parts of the application get updated when state does change. So then the next question is, like, when something goes wrong, and this was one of the big complaints about uh, Reactive Cocoa, is you end up with this nasty stack trace because it was all based on nested blocks, and you can have this huge stack trace unwinding those blocks and not ever get anything useful out of it. Is that 
has Arc Swift done anything to improve upon that? It has some small debugging tools that will help you like print out to the console when something happens. But unfortunately, because things run on schedulers and they're all async, yeah, as soon as you subscribe to an observable, all the all the work is happening on these schedulers, whether they're in a main thread or a background thread. And by the way, it's very easily very easy to to switch between threads. We can do it with just a a one liner basically. So you could have a lot of code working in the background, say from a network call, and then all of a sudden you just say observe on main thread and then your sequence is now running on your main thread, but that comes with that price that if you put a breakpoint in there, you're not easily going to see how you got to that point in time. So that is a problem. <laughs> really, anybody who works in server-side code on large platforms that are highly scalable or highly scaled, they're dealing with this already. You, know, you could put a breakpoint somewhere, but because of the async nature, you're not easily going to see how you got there. Maybe one day the tools will catch up to it, but not they're not there right now. I think if you're going to get started with FRP, one of the, the the best ways is to just start taming some of your system notifications, system level type notifications like KVO or um, NS Notification Center. You don't you don't have to go full on. I'm going to create everything as an observable, and all my API layers are going to be observables. Um, another good place to put it is in it's in your networking layer because that's a very async idea. And if you're using view models, which you should, I think, but personally, binding to binding something in your view model, or even your model, really, you could technically bind your model to your view with some transformations, but binding to your view layer, to your view model, is very simple with uh, something like RX Swift. So, you know, if you want to display a time, your view model would be in charge of taking that time and formatting it into something that your view would display, so your label. And with one line, you can bind the label's text property to your view model's time property. So then in your view model, you're free to just update that thing anytime you want, and you know it's already going to be displayed in your view. Those are some very easy, approachable ways of starting out with FRP. Yeah, and that's one thing we didn't mention before is that Arc Swift does provide a lot of extensions to some of the built-in UI kit or Cocoa Touch classes like a UI label or UI text view or even, I think, core location uh, so you can more easily bind to some of the standard library UI kit features. Yeah, so, you know, I'd, I don't know how long it'll take for the iOS Swift community to fully adopt Arc Swift or some variant of that uh, compared to the Android community that seems to be almost almost there as a as a standard um, you know for me the the hesitation or consideration to make is when I bring a new team member on there's an investment in them learning the concepts before they can really be productive and competent uh, with the architecture but in the long run, they're probably going to produce better structured, less buggy code by having a, f a framework like this in place. But, uh, you know, also, you know, for us, we are a consulting company. So 
in some cases, at the end of the day, we're handing the code over to a client. So we have to consider whether or not the client is going to run into obstacles understanding the code because we use something like RxSwift. Well, I thought that was job security. <laughs> keep the client because you're the only one that can maintain it. In, and uh, oddly enough, in our case, a lot of times our clients are actually asking for it. The bigger clients are already adopting those concepts. So it's becoming more commonplace for us to, to work with RxJava and RxSwift. But it's the, the smaller companies that may or may not have like a team of skilled uh, mobile developers. They, they may have you know one guy that is going to maintain the mobile app and maybe a web app and you know something else. So any framework like this creates potential obstacles to to somebody who's maintaining it may not, not be familiar with the concept. So it's definitely something that you know we take serious consideration uh, before we adopt it for a project. Um, right, and even trying to replace members of your team should that become necessary. It might be hard to find somebody that has iOS and RX Swift experience to the level that you want. Yeah, you, you've definitely raised the bar in terms of maybe not skill level. Like, you know, I, I don't care if you're you know brand new to it or if you've been doing mobile development for the last five years or 10 years. You're, if you've never done RX before, it's uh, you've got about the same learning curve. You, you know, might grasp the bigger concepts faster than somebody who's new, but you're still having to retrain how you approach solving problems. Well, and recruiters are going to hate it because you're never going to find anybody with five years of RX Swift experience. Right. <laughs> um, it's, you know, just after they found the, the person with 12 years of Swift experience, they've got to find five years of RX yep. to go with it. So. <laughs> right. I, I think everybody owes it to themselves to become more familiar with the concepts and decide whether or not it's a good fit for them. I, I think we're going to encounter these FRP style frameworks more and more as time goes on and apps become more complex. Uh, and hopefully we'll see tooling and language level features make it even easier. I, th you know, for whatever reason, Swift seems to be better suited towards the style of programming. Not to say you can't do this in, in Objective-C. I mean, we had Reactive Cocoa, so clearly. Objective-C wasn't necessarily an obstacle to it, but it does seem like Swift is a lot more friendly towards functional programming. You know, functions being first-class citizens definitely makes that easier. Swift generics makes it much more approachable. You know, Objective-C, it's passing everything around as an ID, and so in Reactive Cocoa, well, the I should say the Objective-C half of Reactive Cocoa, because it's kind of got an old style and, and new style, but the old style, which is Objective-C based, was just passing around IDs, and it was really hard to try to figure out what was coming into your handler, unless you were actually running the code in a debugger. So RxSwift makes it pretty clear, and the the type system and the generics, you're pretty sure all the time what's coming into it, into your observable, or your observer. So it makes it a lot easier. And it's a, it's a functional style language, so it looks right at home. So if we haven't convinced you yet, uh, you can go check out the FRP guide on realm.io and learn a lot more about some of the different frameworks that are available. Yeah, and watch a few videos where people talked about it a lot more eloquently than we did, or or I did anyway. That way you can also see examples as well. So it, you yeah. know, there's it, it's kind of hard to d discuss it without seeing code. So Argo, have we convinced you? Uh. 
I'm I'm still intrigued. <laughs> I've I've seen a bunch of like simple examples, and it's like, oh, that looks kind of cool. And uh, like you guys said, it reads really well, but I don't know if I'm convinced. Like how it works on a big app or something like that. And I also just want to wait for some of these things to settle down. Like, I don't want there to be the same number of FERP libraries that there are server-side Swift libraries. I'm waiting <laughs> for, give me Swift 4 with uh, with just RX Swift's left standing or something like that, and I'll be more wanting to uh, jump on the bandwagon. But kind of want to wait and see how things play out at this point. And I need something something new to try it on, because I don't know if it would make sense to integrate it into a bigger app, although maybe it would. I'm not sure. Well, you don't. the good thing is you don't have to adopt it all at once in a larger yeah, app. Right. You can, you can go in small steps. Which would be a bad idea if you're in your first two-month period, right? <laughs> <laughs> to go Possibly. all in. Yeah. All right. Well, we've definitely uh, talked about this subject a lot. It's a good subject, but we do need to get going here, so... Why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the inter internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo on Twitter. And I'm at Sam Quarter on Twitter. The podcast is at Shared Inst. We have a Slack channel as well. You can find that at chat.sharedinstance.com. As well as feel free to email us anytime you want at sharedinstancepodcast at gmail.com. And Argo, we have a survey still. Is that correct? There's still a survey. It'll be in the show notes again, I think. It's okay. in the Slack channel, too, if you're there. I'll see you guys later. Time to find out who died on Walking Dead. No spoilers. You got to cut that part out, Sam. That's no good. <laughs> well, everybody knows somebody died or is going to die. I don't know if everyone does. <laughs> well, I don't even know if they actually did. It could be just one of their long trolls again. Uh, somebody's got to die. Yeah. I vote Glenn. You vote him? I don't want to vote for Glenn. <laughs> I vote for Rick then. <laughs> <laughs> Carl. If we're going to vote so they, for people. So they can't say, Carl! Carl! 